It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. Thomas Merton was an American Catholic writer, mystic, and Trappist monk who died mysteriously in Bangkok, Thailand when he was 53 years old. The gifts he left behind in his shortened life were immense. His fellow monk and sometimes secretary said, when you consider the vast amount of writing the man did in his lifetime, the total output staggers you. Merton also balanced his writings with being a novice master for 10 years. He had regular monastic choir requirements. He kept up with a vast amount of correspondence and continued his theological studies. He was also a poet and an extraordinary photographer. He did all this even though his health was not the best and he never had the services of a regular secretary until just prior to his death. We are the recipients of lavish gifts from this most amazing life, and today we'll be exploring the path of this extraordinary monk with our guest, Father Matthew Fox. Matthew Fox is a priest and was a member of the Dominican Order of the Catholic Church for 34 years. He became an Episcopal priest after being expelled from the Dominican Order by Cardinal Ratzinger, who later became Pope Benedict XVI. Fox holds a doctorate in the history and theology of spirituality and is a scholar in residence with the Academy for the Love of Learning in Santa Fe, New Mexico, as well as the founder and president of Friends of Creation Spirituality. Father Matthew Fox is the author of more than 30 books. Some of them include Original Blessing, Hildegard of Bingen, Letters to Pope Francis, The Coming of the Cosmic Christ, Meister Eckhart, A Mystic Warrior for Our Times, Confessions, The Making of a Post-Denominational Priest, and A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. Join us for the next hours. We explore the life and work of Thomas Merton and his significance for today's world with our guest, Father Matthew Fox. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Matt, welcome. Thank you, Justine. It's good to be back. It's great to sit across from you once more. And um, first of all, I just want to thank you for the dedication in the book in that you you mentioned Michael Toms in the dedication. And I, I that was just thrilling because... Uh, Thomas Merton was someone very important to Michael's life and his spiritual journey. Well, I knew that because often Michael would say to me, I'm a Thomas Merton Catholic. And I think that says a mouthful about Michael because it it shows that he was discerning <laughs> in his Catholicism. And, uh, and he chose well because Thomas Merton was a major 
major figure and a major thinker, an activist in his own way, too. Exactly. And and it's so unusual to think of a Trappist monk, which is one that, that really is more sequestered and, and uh, you know, away from a more hermit-like existence to be so active in the world. The two didn't seem to kind of match, but they actually do. Well, they do, and that's one reason I think why Merton is so so pertinent today because uh, he combined deep contemplation with action. He combined the, the mystical dimension to religion with the prophetic. And he was a, a voice to be reckoned with in terms of the um, moral issues of his day, including the civil rights movement. And, um, and of course, the Vietnam War. He was the first religious figure in America to come out against the Vietnam War. And um, uh, ecology, he was uh, out front in the ecological movement, and uh, and yet he died in 1968. And in fact, I think I I now have real proof that he died a martyr, uh, that he was murdered by the CIA because uh, I've interviewed now three CIA agents who were there in Southeast Asia at the time that Merton died, and I asked them, "Did you kill Merton?" The first said, uh, I'll neither affirm it nor deny it. The second said, well, we were wallowing in money in the CIA in Southeast Asia at the time. There was absolutely no accountability. If even one agent felt that Merton was a threat to the country, he could have had him done in with no questions asked. But the third person I met, who I met after my book came out a month or two ago, I said, did you kill Merton? He said, yes. And he wow. said, the last 40 years of my life, I've been cleansing my soul of what I did. In uh, for those three years, I was working with the CIA as a young man in Southeast Asia. So I think it, it can really be said now that Merton died a martyr, like his friend, um, Dr. Martin Luther King, who died the same year in April. Merton died in, in December. So I think this has to be part of the story. And Bobby Kennedy died that And Bobby same. Kennedy died in June of that year. So it was a really tumultuous time in the U.S., especially at that time. Well, it was, and, and Merton did not hide behind his monastic seclusion. Uh, for example, he was very public about how he was mentoring Father Dan Berrigan and Philip Berrigan, uh, Catholic priests who were committed to nonviolence, but also stood up and did actions to bring attention to the uh, Vietnam War as a moral issue spent a lot of time in jail. And Mer they would go and visit Merton regularly at the monastery where he mentored them. And through the Freedom of Information Act, I think that that, that they know that that Merton's correspondence was illegally opened and, and being by the by either the FBI or the CIA. Exactly, that, just like King's had been. Right. And it was against the law even back then. And also his phone calls were, were intercepted too. So he was definitely on the radar of the um, of the powers that be. And remember, he died, as you said, mysteriously uh, in Bangkok, but he had just delivered an address to a couple hundred monks and nuns entitled Karl Marx and Monasticism. Now, this was not the most prudent <laughs> uh, a choice for a title of a talk in in. Southeast Asia in so, 1968, at the height of the Vietnam War. Of course, like Karl Marx. And he was dead three, three hours after the talk. Three hours after the talk, and Karl Marx being like considered the father of communism, and so he's delivering this talk. 
Yeah. And then three and hours later, he's gone. That's right. And uh, the truth is that many monks, when they heard he died so suddenly, uh, immediately thought it was foul play because they knew he was getting threatening letters from the CIA and FBI, just as King had been getting before his death, too. So it all adds up. And now that I've actually spoken to uh, three people who were part of the organization, I think we just have to recognize that uh, Merton was a martyr for peace. But he had also a premonition that he was not going to live a long life. That's right. He had a number of premonitions, and I, I bring them to the fore in my in my conclusion chapter of my book. And I think even his, as you pointed out in the introduction, even his intense workload um, was part of that. I think he he knew that he wasn't going to live too long. And, and he said that on several occasions. And I think that helps to explain how, how immensely uh, active he was as a writer and, um, and in so many other arenas as well. He, now, he wrote 60 books. <laughs> they're, they're not, many of them are not long, but yes. they're deep. They're, yes. they're substantive. Now, I know that you were invited to Bellarmine University to speak at the 100th uh, anniversary of his birth. And so in that talk, that got you, I believe, to really start to dig through not only his journals and his writings, but the personal writings that you had with Merton. So you were in direct contact with him. Yes, I was. Um, as a young Dominican uh, in my 20s, I, um, I went to my superiors one day and I said, my generation is going to be less interested in religion and more interested in spirituality, which is the experiential dimension to religion. And I said, you're not teaching it here really in our classes. You're just presuming it. So someone should go and get a doctorate in spirituality. And to make a long story short, I wrote Merton and asked him, where do I go? And he said, go to the Institut Catholique de Paris, in Paris. And so um, with that, uh, it took me a while, but I convinced the my superiors to send me to Paris. And it's in Paris that I met my mentor, Pierre Chenu, a wonderful uh, French Dominican who was 75 years old at the time. And he introduced me to the creation spirituality tradition, which became so important to me. So as I, I say, uh, I owe Merton all the trouble I got in because if I had not <laughs> studied in Paris, I never would have met But Chanute. also, he was a mentor of Merton's as well, wasn't That's he? That's right. That's something I discovered in researching this book that I did not know. But Merton had tremendous respect for Chanu, and in fact, Chanu really affected him. It gave him, he gave, Chanu is a great historian, and he gave uh, Merton a perspective on the uh, history of Christianity and how the Constantinian era uh, took over the empire building, took over the direction of the church for centuries, and how the Second Vatican Council, which was occurring in the 60s when Merton was at his height, how that was an effort to deconstruct the Constantinian era that so, had hung around in, in Christianity for so long. So the Constantinian era really was based on the teachings of St. Augustine, right? Well, a combination of Augustine and some um, 
pseudo-documents from the fourth century, supposedly bequeathing the empire to the Pope, which, of course, were forged. But in the Middle Ages, not everyone realized or, or agreed that they were forged documents. There was no uh, uh, WikiLeaks at the time. <laughs> That's right. Where was WikiLeaks when we needed right, them? Right, right. So, so <laughs> that his idea was... Um, very pessimistic, and that mm -hmm. everything is based on the fall and redemption. Yes. Uh, so can you say something about that particular yes. school of thought? Yes. It was Augustine who came up with the term original sin. And we're talking fourth century now. And uh, that is a century that the church took over the empire because the empire collapsed. And, um, and so there was this marriage of empire to pessimism and really patriarchal thinking. And... Augustine was very dualistic. He said, for example, spirit is whatever is not matter. So that you can't get more dualistic than that, splitting spirit from matter. And um, he was also very uh, misogynist. He said, man but not woman is made in the image and likeness of God. So um, all this really uh, took the church in a direction that I think was extremely off-center from the teaching of Jesus on the one hand, but also from just healthy healthy living. We'll talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Father Matthew Fox. He's the author of A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, matthewfox.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Father Matthew Fox, and he's the author of many books, including A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. And Matthew, uh, Merton, Thomas Merton, this, this Trappist monk, really started to tune into something beyond this the rigid standards of the Catholic Church at the time of the, the fall and redemption, the body as not being a, a sacred place, that, that sexuality is not, not a good thing except to procreate and all of that. So how, how did it, Thomas Merton come to this creation spirituality sort of thinking? Well, it, it was a journey for him because um, he entered the monastery in 1940. 1948, he wrote his best-selling autobiography, uh, called Seven Story Mountain, and it it was it really was a big hit, and um, 
But it was not till 1958 that he really began to undergo a conversion, a shift, a real shift in consciousness. Because you can see in his autobiography a lot of dualism, a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. He had read, he had led quite a ribald life as a as a young man and so forth. He had fathered a child illegitimately and so forth, like like Saint Augustine had. And so he had this attitude of guilt that he carried, like Augustine had too. But Augustine lived what, 26 years longer than Merton. He never got over his kill. He dumped it on the rest of us for 16 centuries. <laughs> but Merton, thank God, in 1958 had this awakening, and it occurred through two people. First, Adate Suzuki, the Zen thinker, from uh, philosopher from Japan, who brought Zen to North America. And Merton started correspondence with him. And then Suzuki pushed him to study Eckhart, Meister Eckhart, more deeply, because he felt Eckhart was the epitome of Western mysticism, now, I and know he was that non-dualistic. And I know that you've written about Eckhart, uh, and, and so what century did he live in? And, okay, and and he was Eckhart, kind of a ma ma maverick, too. Oh, definitely. He was a Dominican, like I was, and like Thomas Aquinas was, and, and he lived from the late 13th century to, the, to uh, 1328, so early 14th century. He, he was 17 when... Um, Thomas Aquinas died. He was 13 when Rumi died. He was a contemporary of Hafiz, the great Sufi mystic who followed on Rumi. So he was living in a special time too. But it was Eckhart who really converted Merton from being a dualistic, guilt-ridden, Augustinian-thinking monk to being a prophetic Christian the last 10 years of his life. And when you use the word prophetic, mm -hmm. uh, can you say what you mean by a prophetic Christian? Sure. Well, Rabbi Heschel, who's the honorable uh, exponent of the prophetic tradition in Israel, he says that uh, the prophet's primary work is to interfere. So the prophet says no. The prophet stands up and says no to injustice. And, and so Merton's last 10 years of his life, he was uh, publishing books like Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander, Raids on the Unspeakable, uh, a lot of um, books that were about the cultural moral issues of the 1960s. He befriended very much um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In fact, um, an interesting story is that uh, King and Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk, were scheduled to have a retreat with Thomas Merton at Merton's Gethsemane Abbey the very week that, that uh, King had to cancel the retreat and go marching in uh, Memphis on behalf of the garbage collectors and, of course, got murdered. So history would have been very changed, I think, had that retreat gone through and King had not uh, taken that march, of course. So um, the three of them were, were very supportive of one another. In fact, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh nominated Merton for a Nobel Peace Prize um, after he died because of the strong stand that Merton took against the Vietnam War. I remember uh, sitting down in, uh, with Michael, and Michael did an interview with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Mm. And um, I remember at one point he asked uh, the Dalai Lama about Thomas Merton, and we just watched his countenance just 
absolutely light up. Uh, he just got very animated mm -hmm. uh, in <laughs> his uh, feelings about meeting Thomas Merton there on that trip that he did, yeah. that last trip to the East. And I remember stories that Thomas Merton was not interested in meeting the Dalai Lama. He thought, I don't want to meet a Buddhist pope. <laughs> yeah, is what he what, what he was popes uh, enough popes already. But you know, the Dalai Lama was only thirty three at the time when they met, and Merton was, of course, fifty three, and um, they they got along so well that they both canceled their meetings for the next day. So they spent this extra day together that was not planned, and um, it definitely was was mutual. And just after the book came out, I met this um, North American Buddhist who was close to the Dalai Lama, and he told me this story. He said, last year, the Dalai Lama was asked by a journalist, uh, do you believe in God? And the Dalai Lama said, well, yes. And the journalist said, well, are you sure? Because a lot of Buddhists, he said, do not use the word God. Or not. So I, I want to push you. Do you believe in God? And, and what God do you believe in? And the Dalai Lama paused, and he said, I believe in the God of Thomas Merton. <laughs> oh. Oh, I am thrilled to hear that. That is isn't that great. that's a pretty good endorsement, isn't that it? That is a fabulous. And he also told a friend of mine who met him, uh, who is very much uh, a lover of Thomas Burton and his work. He told this friend, "Thomas Burton is my spiritual father." There you go. So right. there you go. And it's beautiful that you were in the presence of the Dalai Lama when this subject came up of Thomas exactly. Burton. I'm very glad to hear and that story. And um, so what do you suppose he meant by Thomas Merton's God? I mean, because I feel like your God and Thomas Merton's God are very, very similar. And Meister Eckhart's and God. Mark, right. You see, uh, Merton was so influenced by Eckhart for the last 10 years that he often said that Eckhart is my lifeboat. Eckhart is my lifeboat. And, of course, one thing that Eckhart did for him was he opened Merton up to the East. And so uh, a lot of Merton's work was pioneering about bringing East and West together, interfaith. And remember, back then in the 60s, this was new ground for a lot of people. Um, and uh, this is why he made his journey East, to meet a lot of Hindu teachers in India and, and, and Ceylon, and also uh, the Dalai Lama. And he also met the founder, who became the founder of Naropa University, um, the... Um, Chagam. Yes, and he was only a young man at the time. I yes. think he was 30 or so, and they hit it off. Um, but also Merton had a profound mystical experience at a great Buddha shrine in Ceylon just uh, shortly before he went to Bangkok and, and died. And it was a very powerful experience for him. It was a real, he felt it was a real coming together of his whole spiritual life there. So there is another whole field in which Merton was was leading the way, and that is he was a pioneer in terms of interfaith error, what I call deep ecumenism. Didn't uh, he write to you at some point that, uh, and you use it, I think, in your book, if I remember correctly, that it, just before, maybe a couple of months before he took that trip, that I, I have found a way to God? Yes. Um, actually, when he wrote... His letter to me, which I exegete and reproduce in this book, it was January 1967. He died in December of 68. But um, in it, he, 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 um, he thanked me for going ahead and studying spirituality, and this is how he put it. He said, I'm glad you're going to work on spiritual theology. I do think we are lying down on the job when we leave others to investigate mysticism while we concentrate on more practical things. 
what people want of us, after all, is the way to God. So that's where I got the title for the book, calling it A Way to God. But it's the four paths of Christian spirituality that really leap out to me when I read a Thomas Merton. Uh, and it goes back to your question, what kind of God did Merton worship, you see? Uh, the God of, um, of awe and wonder and beauty, the via positiva, the God of silence and nothingness, and uh, of, of pathos and suffering, the via negativa, the God of creativity. Uh, uh, Merton was nothing if not creative. He was not only, as you put it on, a photographer and a writer and a poet, he also did calligraphy, and um, he he was he, he was a big fan of jazz. Big fan of jazz, exactly, yeah. and music, exactly, and um, and uh, the art of friendship was very important to him. And then the via transformativa is the god of justice and compassion, and that's the prophetic side to Merton that is so strong, and uh, and comes out in so many ways. Here's just one story, for example, when Rachel Carson came out with her book Silent Spring in 1962. It of course has been called the the, the first shot in the environmental movement, uh, she was immediately fired by the science department at her university, who called her, quote, a, a hysterical woman in love with trees and bunnies, unquote. Well, Merton, in contrast, wrote her a letter almost immediately. He read her book, wrote her a letter and thanked, a three-page letter praising her for her book, saying that because of her research, they were now ceasing to use DDT on the monastic farm. And because of her work, he understood why so many birds had been disappearing from the farm over the over the years that he was there. And um, as he wrote, as uh, supporting her and rebutting criticisms, he said, uh, people complain that I love birds too much. He said, you can love both birds and people. And uh, that's the point. <laughs> it's you can not love either, trees and people. Right? It's not it's exactly an either or, is it? Right, right. And and then that goes to, and you mentioned Thomas Berry, Father Thomas Berry in, in your book, who's a theologian and also a great proponent of ecology and what's going on. And um, uh, Berry, that if I can quote, quote, the quote you use in the book is, the absence of the sense of the sacred is the basic flaw in many of our efforts at ecologically or environmentally adjusted, adjusting to our human presence in the natural world. So he's really saying, hey, there, there's a sacred quality here. It's not just about, um, you know, renewable uh, resources. I mean, that's part of it, but it's deeper than that. Is Absolutely what, deeper. What would you have to say about that? Absolutely. Thomas Berry did a preface to a, a good book on uh, Merton's, it's a collection of Merton's meditations on nature. And um, Merton had so much to say about the beauty of nature and its its spiritual and sacred sense to us. After all, Merton was um, uh, Celtic. His, uh, his relatives, some of his relatives were from Wales. And he's very, he, therefore he's very attuned to the sacredness of nature. That's such, such a big part of uh, his Celtic uh, tradition. But uh, he has some marvelous passages where he talks about the, the spiritual uh, dimension to nature. For example, he says, every plant that stands in the light of the sun is a saint and an outlaw. <laughs> every tree that brings forth blossoms without the command of man is powerful in the sight of God. Every star that man has not counted is a world of sanity and perfection. 
And in one of his journals, he talks to himself. He says, dance in this sun, you tepid idiot. Wake up and dance in the clarity of perfect contradiction. You fool, it is life that makes you dance. Have you forgotten? So he has this deep appreciation of the sacredness of, uh, of nature. It's like life doesn't need to be redeemed. <laughs> it needs to be, as in this, celebrated. <laughs> exactly. It? And right, and encountered in a deep way. I'm here with Matthew Fox, and we're talking about the journey of Thomas Merton. He's the author of The Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Father Matthew Fox. He's the author of A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. And can you give us an example of something that conveys this idea from, from your, your book? Yes, this is a, a passage in, um, in Merton's writings. He says, he's talking about his living now in the, um, in the very simple hermitage where he lived, which was very close to, to nature. He says, I live in the woods out of necessity. I get out of bed in the middle of the night because it is imperative that I hear the silence of the night alone and with my face on the floor say psalms alone in the silence of the night. The silence of the forest is my bride and the sweet dark warmth of the whole world is my love. And out of the heart of that dark warmth comes a secret that is heard only in silence. But it is the root of all the secrets that are whispered by all the lovers in their beds all over the world. Such a beautiful passage that marries the, the cosmos and the psyche, you see. So the cosmic night is loving us. It is our bride. And it echoes the love between humans uh, all over the world. It's just a marvelous passage that shows, for, among other things, that he's completely gotten over the dualisms that he had between nature and grace and, and spirit and matter that he had inherited from Augustine, mm -hmm. but also that important dualism that humans suffer from so much today, and that is the human psyche cut off from the cosmos. And he's remarrying cosmos and psyche, and that is so important for humans to find peace and become peacemakers. So what would you say about the correlation between dualism and original sin? Mm. What, would you, what would you have to say about that? And what have you learned from yourself and from your own journey and Merton's journey? Well, as we talked about earlier, original sin is very pessimistic and therefore patriarchal view of the world. Um, it, the idea that a, a baby comes in the world already a sinner or um, a damaged, uh, un, uh, damaged goods, this is not what mothers experience. It's not what indigenous people around the world experience. In fact, 
you know, the idea of original sin is, is very rare, except for Western Christianity. Eastern Christianity rejects it, uh, and it's not found in Islam. It's not found in Buddhism. Quite the opposite. Buddhism talks about our original, original face, the Buddha nature that we all have. And the deeper tradition of Christianity is that every being, and certainly every human being, is an image of God, is a cosmic Christ, another Christ. So um, this path, uh, this detour that Augustine took us on into dualism uh, is, is pernicious. It creates self-doubt in an individual. It's bad sociology because uh, in a culture, you wonder, well, maybe I, my original sin is that I'm black or that I'm gay or that I'm a woman in a, in a patriarchal culture. So it has sociological implications that are very severe. And I think that's why the idea caught on at the time that Christianity started running an empire. Because you're going to run an empire, original sin's a good idea because it makes everyone doubt themselves, and therefore they get in line. And uh, So it's a way of controlling. It's a way of controlling, absolutely. And uh, uh, one thing I found in, in my study here with Merton was that he was wrestling with this issue of original sin in the 60s. He himself was not happy with it, and he was going back and forth. And there's a wonderful uh, poem he has about uh, our human nature that I'd love to share if I can, because I think it gets, gets to the heart of his resolution with the issue. Now, I, of course, came to the conclusion of original blessing um, in my book written in 1983, and I think it's, it's solid psychologically, sociologically, and theologically, because the truth is that Jesus never heard of original sin. No Jews ever heard of original sin. So that path that Augustine took Christianity on is a detour. But here's a wonderful poem by Merton called First Lesson About Man. Can I share this? Oh, please. Man begins in zoology. I think that's his affirmation of evolution. He is the saddest animal. He drives a big red car called anxiety. Whenever he goes to the phone to call Joy, he gets the wrong number. <laughs> Therefore, he likes weapons. He knows all guns by their right names. He drives a big black Cadillac called Death. Now he is putting anxiety into space. He flies his worries all around Venus, but it does him no good. Man is the saddest animal. He begins in zoology and gets lost his own bad news. <laughs> oh, boy, a, does that completely applies today? Doesn't more, it? Doesn't exactly. It? Yes, yes. Exactly. And the quest for joy and, and the loss and all that. And, and his one of the big issues he took on in the 60s was technology. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah. All right, let's talk about what his view of technology, what well, would Merton say? Right. Well, of course, the big deal going in the 60s was getting to the moon. And they got to the moon a year after you died, 1969. But he, unlike the, uh, the basic uh, ethos of the time, he questioned uh, the, the whole effort in a way. And this is what he had to say about it. And it really uh, lays bare his, his thinking on technology. He says, even if we can fly, so what? They're flying ants. Even if humans fly all over the universe, we are still nothing but a flying ant until we recover a human center and a human spirit in the depth of our own being. What can we gain by sailing to the moon if we are not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? 
This is the most important of all voyages of discovery. Without it, all the rest are not only useless, but disastrous. Now, what if we had heeded his advice 55 years ago, you see, and we had put just a modest amount of the research, the money, the talent we put into getting to the moon and, and beyond into exploring this much more important issue, which is what makes human beings so violent? Why are we so tapped into powers of evil that we, you know, that we're we're still flying our worries around Venus and Mars and every place else? You see, as he says, we're afraid to undergo this deeper journey. He's saying, and um, and I think he's right, and I think he challenges, frankly, today's. Um, Silicon Valley. Today, the issue isn't getting to the moon, but every year we have a new gadget, new gee whiz gadgets coming out of Silicon Valley, don't we? And we know that Silicon Valley is doing very well. They have lots of money. But notice, the man who murdered 50 people in Orlando was on Facebook while he was shooting his machine gun, and uh, he was texting at the time, too. ISIS gets all the latest gadgets from Silicon Valley and applies it to their methodological uh, work of evil. So clearly technology is not going to save the human species. That's what Merton is saying. And as Rabbi Heschel, who, by the way, was a friend of Merton's too, said the same thing. He said, humanity will not be saved by more information, which is, of course, what computers give us, but by more appreciation, which mm -hmm. is this, this soul work that Merton is calling for. So here's what I propose. I think Silicon Valley, given its vast success, should tax itself just a little bit on some of its massive profits. And with that tax, should put some research and support into groups of spiritual um, seekers all over the world who are trying to bring out the best uh, that we know the best methods we have, whether it's from Native American practices or Buddhist or Christian or Jewish or Hindu, to, to gather the forces of wisdom that can deal with this issue that Merton's talking about, about our propensity for violence and what we can do about it. So for us to look deeply at this issue and why we as a species collectively are choosing this? What is influencing us? How deeply can we go to find this other? As you said earlier, that we are born with the face of God, uh -huh. so to speak, or, right. or the face of wisdom and love, or right. what, whatever you want to call the it. Buddha Universe, nature, the Christ Buddha, nature. Mm -hmm. Universal intelligence, whatever that uh -huh. is. And, and then why we choose something other than that, why yeah. we back up from that. Exactly. What, what are we so afraid of? Yeah. And that's what Merton's saying, that we, you know, we go for the guns, we go for violence when we don't find the joy. Well, why don't we find the joy? You know, what's holding us back? And this is a cultural thing, not just an individual thing. For example, Merton critiques, um, well, he critiques religion very strongly, but he also critiques the media. He says that we are, um, we are inundated with, with, um, a, a uh, glittering Niagara of trivia from the media. I, I loved a glittering it. Glittering Niagara. Niagara of trivia. I, I loved it. The Niagara of noise from the the exactly the media. And, and trivia. And, and I I know like here we're we're sitting down in 2016, the late summer of 2016. What I notice is that 
if you follow the news, let's say the political news, every day there's some little nuance that they're reporting on and they 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 just expand it and blow it up into this big thing. And then the next day it's something else and something else. And it just it keeps you in a tither. Exactly. And and it's kind of like Andy Weil, Dr. Andy Weil would say, We we might need to take a little bit of a media break, you know. <laughs> and pull and, the plug. And pull the plug <laughs> and take take some time and not just tune in every single little nuance they Exa- would have exactly. us do. And and uh, here's what Merton says, because he has, and he analyzes, he says, the, the effect of this mentality is found in the mass media, the results in giving the public what it wants in order to get the public's money. Uh, and he says, you know, we're not looking for, for what count matters, we're looking for what will pay off, what will increase our profits. What will increase our so profits, he's, he's a, there you He's go. a great critic of the, um, you know, of the, the capitalist system as, as it's, it's being played out. And I loved what you said uh, earlier about uh, you described Merton getting up in the middle of the night mm. and and or the early morning in that quiet of morning, and how that part of him that was a hermit that did know the importance of being alone in the silence. Yes, indeed. Yes. His solitude, of course, is very important to him as it should be to everybody, because that's how we calm the reptilian brain, by tuning in to our capacity for silence and stillness. And um, he did that as a monk, but he did it, I think, even more as a, as a hermit. And um, it's an invitation for all of us. That's how the contemplative side of our, our psyches is developed, by honoring the silence. And, of course, that's what meditation is in any tradition. Right. It's... Um, it's, right. uh, and yet, on the other side of that coin, married to that is is compassion in action. So it's not it's not just okay recede from the world <laughs> altogether, but it's like bringing the gifts of that then into some action as as he did. I want to remind exactly. our listeners that I'm here with Father Matthew Fox. He's the author of The Way to God, Thomas Merton's. Creation Spirituality Journey. And if you want to know more about the work of Father Fox, you can go to his website, matthewfox.org. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
I'm here with Father Matthew Fox. He's the author of many, many books, and his the latest one is A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. And Matthew, um, the way that you describe his journey, and I would say even your journey, you, you talk about it, I, I think the quote is something, it's a complete circle, but it is not a closed circle. It is represented by a spiral. And that really, I, I love the image of that, that we do come back around, but not quite the same. Hmm. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Yes, and I think there's something very Celtic about that too. Um, you know, the entrance to Newgrange, this ancient monument in, uh, in Ireland, there are three um, circles, or three, um, really they're, they're spirals, mm -hmm. uh, and the great entrance that was built, you know, it's older than the pyramids, this place. And of course, DNA, our DNA is spiral, and, and the galaxies are spiral. So spiral is, is a very important uh, uh, energy a model for the universe, the macrocosm and the microcosm. So um, why wouldn't our journeys also be spiral in some way? And I think the four paths that I talk about are, are very spiral. They're not closed. After the fourth path, the via transformativa, you go back to the via positiva again, because that's what justice and compassion are meant to do, is meant to bring more people to the table of the banquet of the joy and the beauty and the awe of life, you see. So uh, none of it is a closed circle. I think that all of life is an open circle. That takes me to another subject. And your bringing up Newgrange reminds <laughs> me of a, a moment Michael and I were able to visit Newgrange. And, and have you been there? Yes. Indeed. Okay, so you know that the entrance is kind of narrow when you walk in and there's this long kind of passageway. And when, when we got there... I realized that Michael, being as big as he was, Ooh. probably would not fit through oh. this narrow passage. Uh -huh. And so I walked through with a very small group of people and ended up in this chamber. Mm -hmm. And I turned around, and there was Michael. <laughs> he made it, huh? And I said, Michael, how did you do it? And Michael said, I crawled on my hands and knees, <laughs> bowed down to the mother. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, what an initiation he had that he really, That's he came in, bowed low to That's the mother. Story. Part of the story that I like, of that story that I like, is that you charged ahead and didn't even look back. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's good, too. So something about your personality. But you know, as you know, that... Um, amazing monument is so set up so that only one day of the year, December 21st, the sun shines through the entire shaft. That happens to be my birthday too, <laughs> the winter solstice. <laughs> and, so and I'm then, especially partial to that So monument. then the, the chamber is impregnated with the light, you know, exactly. in, in that way. And and that just reminds me of one of the things that, that you say of Merton and I know of you and this happened and also that that the church said it was heretical for on your part was uh, that you call God mother you mm. know the mother the 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 Godhead is mother well um all the the creation mystics call God mother uh, Hildegard of Bingen um uh, Meister Eckhart Shirley and of course Julian of Norwich developed that uh, 
fuller than any other theologian in the West. But uh, Merton, too, uh, called God mother. He wrote a beautiful long poem called Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom. And um, he has many uh, teachings about the feminine side of God, just as I had. And so um, the critique from the Vatican at the time against my work was simply uh, ignorance. Uh, they didn't realize that the motherhood of God has often been celebrated in the West by the great mystics. And even um, uh, Isaiah 42 talks about God as mother. So even the Bible has some of that in it, not nearly enough. But um, it's important because if we carry only a male version of divinity and teach our children this, whether they be boys or girls, this is, um, is setting us up for a patriarchal culture. And we need a healthy culture, would have a healthy balance of masculine and feminine images and energies. And you can see it, for example, I think, in our school system and in other systems, certainly the political system, the economic system, it's excessively um, patriarchal. And it's missing the dimensions of, um, of compassion and caring and uh, creativity that are integral to the feminine uh, value system. Exactly. You know, one of the other um, uh, heresies that you were accused <laughs> of when you were uh, dismissed from the Dominican order um, was that you were, um, it was said that, that you were taking the four-path way instead of the traditional three-path way. And this was very offensive to the quote-unquote church uh, and was heretical. So can you uh, say something about that? Well, those three paths are purgation, illumination, union. And what I noticed very early in my thinking about these things is it leaves out joy, it leaves out creativity, leaves out justice. So there's a lot missing in those paths. And then I researched them more, and they don't come from the Bible at all. They came from a second and third century philosopher, uh, Proclus and Plotinus, two philosophers. And neither of them were, were Christian or Jewish. They didn't know even the Bible. So why is it, once again, it's just like original sin idea too. It's not in the Bible. So why is it the church has built this edifice on these important concepts uh, that are not uh, Jewish-based or biblically-based that Jesus never heard of? It Again, I think it serves political interests. But um, it's not good spirituality, it's not good theology, and uh, we have to consciously throw them out. And in my doing so, a lot of, um, I've had a lot of response from Jewish thinkers, for example, who have appreciated what I've done and understood what I've done by stepping away from that, um, that uh, choking <laughs> uh, uh, system that is contrary to Jewish thinking, that leaves out justice, leaves out joy. These are creativity. So, Matthew, where are you these days? What What is exciting your soul? What is stimulating your own personal creativity? Well, um, a number of things. For one thing, they're starting up a new school again based on my University of Creation Spirituality. Uh, and by they, I mean the uh, younger generation and many of our graduates. They're, they're calling it, of all things, and Institute of uh, what the Matthew Fox Institute of Creation Spirituality, but they'll be offering master's degrees in Christian spirituality and also a doctor of ministry and work in spirituality, and a new degree, a DSP, a Doctor of Spirituality, 
um, in spirituality. So uh, I'm excited about that, and uh, I think it'll be up and running by January. And uh, I'm kind of behind the scenes. As I say, uh, I'm kind of an elder. I'll teach a bit in it. But again, I'm excited. It's a new generation that's that's uh, enthused about this. I'm just thinking of your time in Paris when you were with uh, Pierre Chenu. That at in in Paris there was quite a quite a lot going on a revolution in Paris at that time in those years which would be in the, the 60, early 70, 60, 67 to seventy I would say right there. and mm-hmm. uh, that he encouraged you all as students to get out in the streets go out there and and mix with the young people and and he he was not afraid of the not young at all. people he was seventy five years old he said go out and join the revolution he said don't come back next class come back in two weeks and tell me what you've contributed to the revolution he said and uh, yeah he was a a marvelous soul uh, very alive very youthful and um, and uh, and courageous but with a wonderful sense of humor too. He was very special, yeah. So, and with you and all the work that you do with young people in your Cosmic Mass, uh, which are just, just mm-hmm. these wonderful gatherings that involve, uh, well, you please describe what it well, is. Well, we really have brought rave into, into the Western liturgy. So the essence of them is dance uh, as prayer and worship together. And, um, uh, yeah, we've done over 100 of them in various places in North America, and uh, we have a new generation trained young, in the young 30s who are doing it. And uh, we're excited. We, we think it's kind of time to take it more nationally and uh, even internationally. And this would go along with what Merton thought about the liturgy. He really felt like the liturgy of the church was quite dead. That's very true. He was moved very much by an African mass that he heard on tape. And he... He, he he referred to that frequently, that this sounds much more real than what we're doing. He also criticized the priesthood as it was being practiced and, and as they were training people for it. He said, we have to reinvent the priesthood, he said. So definitely, I've been doing this kind of thing in my work, um, certainly for the last 20, 25 years. One reason I became Episcopalian was that the freedom was there to reinvent worship and uh, what we're doing is bringing in postmodern language like dance, uh, DJs, VJs, rappers, um, and and inviting these young people to uh, to uh, participate and really lead in in sacred ceremony. And uh, I think there's a profound need for that. I mean, consider Burning Man, which is happening this week. Seventy thousand people go out to the desert in August to do what? To have ritual, and. Um, uh, we our our modern culture underestimates the power of ritual, but it's not about reading and being read to and being preached at. It's something much more bodily than that. So I think it's it's timely that uh, and in our cosmic masses they're very ecumenical. We've had Buddhists and Muslims and Sufis and and Jewish people and and rabbis as well as Christians of all sorts uh, participate and uh, take delight in this prayer experience. Well, may it continue to grow. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Justine. It's always a pleasure. I've been speaking with Father Matthew Fox, the author of A Way to God, Thomas Merton's Creation Spirituality Journey. And if you'd like to know more about his work, you can go to his website, matthewfox.org, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. 
This is program number 3593. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Please visit us at newdimensions.org, where you can subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. That's newdimensions.org. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. Since 1973, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge of culture, the arts, science, health, psychology, spirituality, and a host of other fields. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions Archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.